Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Fastball Show brought to you by JohnPaley.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Lots of stuff to get into in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. Just a reminder, if you're interested, want to be part of the show, you can comment on the Facebook Live or Periscope feed, or if you're listening on YouTube, feel free to throw a comment in, a number. If you want to call in, have your voice heard. It's 732-364-3598. That's 732-364-3598. And there's a ton of stuff that we're going to get into. We're going to talk a little baseball today, but also want to get into a couple things going on. The NBA All-Star Game, I'm going to put some suggestions out there as far as maybe a way to just make the game more like the NBA. Now, it's pretty close. I mean, if you think of scoring in the NBA, scoring in the All-Star game, 170-something points, 160-something points, obviously you can't be shocked with what you saw there. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And maybe, just maybe, there's finally an end to the Colin Kaepernick saga. There's a couple other things I do want to bring up, and we're probably going to spread the content over the course of two shows. I want to talk a little NASCAR at some point, but also found an interesting article about quantifying the difference between the greatest baseball players and the best baseball players as it's contingent to certain generations. And that kind of coincides with the list that I put together of the top 100 position players in Major League Baseball history. Not sure we're going to be able to get into all of it today, but... What I do want to start out by talking about is obviously the end, which is at least is perceived, of the Manny Machado saga. Looks like he's going to sign with the San Diego Padres. Ten years, $300 million. And the reaction to it is probably from fans of teams that happen to consider themselves big market. Hey, you took the most money. If you're Manny Machado, you're going to go to San Diego. San Diego obviously doesn't have the richest baseball history in regards to success. Been to two World Series in 1984-1998. They've struggled over the last handful of seasons. So the thought being that it is, is listen, you can make a case that you may not believe that Manny Machado is ever going to win a World Series wearing a San Diego Padres uniform. If he, wear, if he wins one, then he's part of that first San Diego Padres team that has ever won a World Series. And that's, that's, that would be pretty outstanding if you want to be that player to, to bring the team over the top. But you look back at the track record of Manny Machado, and of course he played in a postseason in a World Series last year with the Los Angeles Dodgers. A couple postseason appearances with that of the Baltimore Orioles over a couple seasons. Obviously that team went down the tubes last year. Was not doing very well until they decided to trade Manny Machado. But the bottom line is that the Baltimore Orioles, not looking very good. Ended up not winning a whole lot with Machado there. They probably had some good times, but probably had more bad times than good over the course of Manny Machado's career there. So you think from whatever team would end up signing him is probably looking for somebody that's going to put him over the top. Particularly at that amount of money that you're going to pay him. You're going to pay a player $300 million over the course of 10 years. You want to feel like you're going to be able to get something out of it. And the San Diego Padres have been pushing to try to get back to relevance over the last couple seasons. And the signing of Eric Hosmer last offseason was a little bit of a surprise. And I think I'm a little more surprised about 
the Hosmer signing of last year than I am Machado because I believe up to this point, the Padres have at least been able to sell something. The fact that they have the best farm system in baseball. The fact that there's a lot of positivity coming to San Diego as a team that may be looking to turn itself around and could use a cornerstone player or two to get them over the top. I think back years ago when the Washington Nationals signed Jason Wirth, it didn't look like it was a smart signing, but it turned out to be that player that was able to bring a winning type of attitude or an attitude that was saying, hey, what has gone on in Washington with the Nationals for the last several years and since they moved from Montreal was not going to be acceptable now. And it was going to be kind of the turning of a new leaf as this team was going to bring in some young stars. And you need that veteran to be there to say, listen, you know, there may be some ups and downs over the course of this development, but we're not going to accept losing. We're not going to go down. We're going to get better over the next couple seasons. Now, you could question whether or not you believe that Manny Machado is that type of player. And it's fine. I don't have any issue with that. You know, you think of Bryce Harper, and, and listen, I think Bryce Harper overall is a better player. He's a more prolific bat. I think he brings a lot more in regards to energy, not to say that Manny Machado doesn't have any energy. But if I'm looking to turn a corner with a series of young players and want to bring that player that I know is going to be part of the winning process and a player that I want to build my team around, I would probably choose Harper over Machado. That being said, the last thing I want to talk about is the value of a team's prospects. And let's be serious. In the year 2019, and it's been going on for a while, many of us has, have overvalued what prospects actually are and what they're projected to be against what they're going to end up doing over the course of time. Very few prospects come up and perform to the level of a Mike Trout or perform to the level of a Bryce Harper. Or if you want, as we're talking about Manny Machado, Manny Machado was expected to be a very big-time prospect. Drafted very high in a draft by the Baltimore Orioles in the major leagues by the time he was 19. He ended up filling the build of that top prospect. Now, you could look at the San Diego Padres farm system and talk about Luis Urias. You could talk about Fernando Tatis Jr., Anderson Espinosa, the young pitcher that they got in a trade for Drew Pomerantz from the Boston Red Sox. Looks like he's, he, he's going to be pretty good. Cal Quantrill, you got Mackenzie Gore, there, you know Francisco Mejia that they got from the Indians last year in a Brad Hand trade. And you look at the group of young players that they got there, and you say, out of this mix, you expect there to be enough positivity and enough talent that's going to be able to turn this team and turn the corner. But it's not a guarantee. And we could say the word prospect until the cows come home and talk about how great it is to say that somebody's a prospect. But let's be serious. In a lot of cases, the hype of a prospect usually exists up until they step on a major league diamond. And, you know, you can think of so many players that the expectations were that they were going to be so great. We could pull up the top prospects of five years ago and, you know, be amazed that some of these players are even still in baseball. And that prospect status will exist up until you play your first major league game. And the second that that happens, sure, you'll get a little bit of a learning curve 
If you look at Mejia, since he's come up to the major leagues, he's only had a handful of at-bats, hasn't necessarily torn it up. Urias struggled a little bit at the plate. We know he's going to be a very good defensive player or shortstop, maybe playing second with Tatis playing shortstop in the long term for the San Diego Padres. But the, the question is going to be, all right, you get a certain amount of a pass once you come up to the major leagues. But after that, that prospect status goes to the tubes, and all of a sudden it's going to be, what are you doing at the major league level? You look at a guy like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the expectation is once he comes up and plays major league baseball at third base for the Toronto Blue Jays, that his bat is just going to captivate audiences. We're going to talk about him along the same lines as we talked about Bryce Harper and Manny Machado six, seven years ago. Now, that's got to happen. So the Padres have a very good selling point to Manny Machado, which I believe, in addition to the $300 million over the course of 10 years, was a good reason to sell Machado and probably a good enough reason to bring him aboard. Now, the question is going to be, the San Diego Padres going forward, was this a move where you're just throwing a bunch of money at a player when you don't necessarily have the track record and history of doing that? for a series of mediocrity over the course of the next several seasons. If that's the case, it looks like a very bad move for the San Diego Padres and makes the Eric Hosmer move look like a very bad move for the San Diego Padres. The question is, what what are they going to do to supplement Machado and Hosmer? And oh yeah, Will Myers is still there. You have some very good young players in the outfield, whether it's a Franchi Crodero or a Framil Reyes, Hunter Renfro. You got Austin Hedges to team with. Francisco Mejia behind the plate. Ian Kinsler, a veteran presence, is going to be playing second base opening day. The question is going to be, can the San Diego Padres, from a pitching standpoint, put enough out there to be able to compete with the likes of the Colorado Rockies and the Los Angeles Dodgers? Now, the feeling is, perhaps long term, this is something that could work out. Over the course of the next several years, I think the Padres will be able to bridge the gap between that of the Rockies and the Dodgers. The question is going to be, right now, 2019, what do the San Diego Padres look like with Manny Machado? They're a better team. And I think offensively, they have the ability to compete with the likes of Colorado and the Dodgers. You put their lineup up against the Dodgers lineup, which you know there's going to be a lot of players moving in and moving out. Max Muncy, Chris Taylor, they're going to be playing different positions. Cody Bellinger, first base, center field. A.J. Pollock's there, of course. The, you know, you have Russell Martin catching, who you hope at this stage of his career can just handle the pitchers well. You're not going to expect much offensively out of him. But, and obviously the Rockies with Blackman and Ian Desmond and the players that you got in Colorado, and of course one of the greatest stars in a game playing third base for them and Nolan Arenado. Trevor Story in short. This is a, obviously Daniel Murphy coming over as a free agent signing. The Rockies, at least based off of their home ballpark and the players that they have centered their offense around, look like they have the best offense in the division, but I think the Padres can compete with it. And this is something that I probably never thought I was ever going to say. And I talked about it last year. We talked about it as the Colorado Rockies were getting themselves ready to play some postseason baseball for the second consecutive season. And that's the Rockies have some very good pitching. Not just pitchers that can pitch in that ballpark, but some damn good pitchers that could be put up with the likes of some of the best starting fives in the National League West. And I think they're as good as the Dodgers. They're better than the Padres. 
the Diamondbacks, the Giants. You know, you think of the Giants clicking at all cylinders with Bumgarner and maybe a healthy Cueto as he comes back from John, uh, Tommy John surgery. Jeff Samarja is still there. They obviously have some talent, but the one thing that's going to hurt the Padres, at least initially, is their ability to compete and get hitters out. Their bullpen is not necessarily that deep. Kirby Yates had a very good year last year. Breakout season, he's probably going to be their closer. They signed Garrett Richards, but there's always that fear that Garrett Richards may you know, end up hurting himself further, or when is he going to be back on the diamond? Garrett Richards, if he's healthy, is a very good addition to the team. But I don't like the Padres right now as far as how they compete with the Dodgers and the Colorado Rockies. I think from an offensive standpoint, they're up there. They're certainly better with Machado. And you know, at some point, if you get Urias as an offensive player, what he was in the minor leagues, and Tatis like he was expected to be, then I think the Padres can take some very big strides this year. But I'm not willing to jump in and say, hey, Manny Machado's there. The San Diego Padres are going to the playoffs this year. But I do think it's a positive move, and I think over the course of the future, the Padres will take some steps and become one of the better teams in the National League. This copyright broadcast is authorized under internet rights, granted by the World Wide Web, and is solely for your entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of the show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC, is prohibited. Any commercial other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Jacob DeGrom. And, you know, he's in a tough spot because obviously coming off of a Cy Young season and his establishment as one of the top pitchers at all Major League Baseball, let alone just the National League, you know, there should be some discussion over what a player like that is worth. And I do think that that means something. When it, when it comes down to the expectation as far as the performance on the field. And I do believe that Jacob DeGrom certainly has earned himself any type of mega contract that he could possibly ask for. And if he was a free agent right now, he could probably get close to what some of the top pitchers have gotten in recent free agent baseball history. Certainly is worth what Patrick Corbin got from the Washington Nationals. Now, if you're the New York Mets, it's a very tough bargaining tactic when a player had a season like he did last year, like Jacob DeGrom did. You don't necessarily want to negotiate off of that, but obviously you got the wrinkle of Jacob DeGrom's former agent now being the New York Mets general manager, and Brody Van Wagenen was very outspoken about the Mets needing to lock up Jacob DeGrom long-term or the possibility of trading him. Obviously, he's backed off those comments now. His job requires him to look at different things and to, you know, maybe, you know, disrespect players a little bit and try to keep the value of their contracts down. So Jacob DeGrom was involved in an interview or was asked a couple questions in regards to whether he would be thinking about perhaps curtailing his innings over the course of the season if he wasn't locked up long term. And he, he basically implied that that would be something that he'd have to discuss with his agent. So right off the bat, he didn't say, hey, there's no way I'm gonna do that. I'm never going to compromise my integrity. And there's a lot of how that could be perceived negatively when it comes to fans 
and certainly when it comes to the New York Mets as an organization. Now, my belief is you're going to have to let these comments pass and understand that this is a player coming off of his best season, one of the better all-time pitching seasons that we've certainly seen in the last 30 years. Obviously, it's hard to compare baseball within the last 30 years to the decades that preceded it, particularly in the early part of the 19th century. You, know, you have a guy like Walter Johnson wins 36 games with a one-something ERA, pitches almost 400 innings, 29 complete games. It's hard to quantify that against what Jacob DeGrom did last season in a completely different baseball game. But we can all agree that Jacob DeGrom's earning potential and what he should be making should be up there amongst the best of all pitchers in Major League Baseball. So the Mets are in a little bit of a different, a difficult situation because I think they've been trying to negotiate, but there's questions that have been brought out to the media and are discussed on shows like this, whether or not the New York Mets are negotiating with good faith. He's got a agreement that he has for this year where he's going to make $17 million. He's arbitration eligible for another season next year, where if he could compete at anywhere near the level he did in 2018, he should be able to make well over $20 million and possibly approach $30 million in arbitration in his last season. Now, if you're a Mets fan, you hope that the Mets and Jacob DeGrom come to some sort of an agreement to assure that DeGrom is going to be in New York long term. Because I think the closer you get to free agency, if it's, you know, you, you jump into DeLorean, you go to the year of 2020, we're in spring training, and getting ready for baseball in Port St. Lucie a year from now, there's possibility that there that Jacob DeGrom may not even have any interest in negotiating with the Mets, may want to play his last year out and become a free agent after the season. And if that happens, then obviously as a free agent, he's going to go to the highest bidder. You have 29 other teams that could be involved. But we know from what has happened over the last couple of years in free agency, that guarantee that that player that is expected to earn so much in free agency is not necessarily there. And if they're going to get it, they may have to wait as long as Manny Machado has waited and guys like Bryce Harper and Craig Kimbrell and Dallas Keuchel and Gio Gonzalez and Marlon Gonzalez and others will have to wait past this date as spring training is getting ready to start. There's going to be games within a week and none of these players have a job at this point. Now, Jacob DeGrom, Cy Young Award winner, top pitcher in all of baseball, perhaps, if he could duplicate what he did this past season, which is going to be very hard to do over the course of the next two, then he may be in a different type of category. Pitching is obviously something the game is always looking for. And Jacob DeGrom started his career as a shortstop, so he doesn't necessarily have as much strain on his arm as a lot of other pitchers that have hit the age of 30. If I'm the Mets, I try to do something up until opening day to lock this guy up. But the most important thing that I can mention about Jacob DeGrom is you have to understand his frustration. This is a guy that has handled himself ridiculously well, is well-spoken, handles the media well, never says anything out of turn, always talks about doing what he can to help the team, went through a season last year where he was doing nothing but giving up one run in eight innings and throwing zeros on the board, was getting absolutely no run support, and said nothing but good things about his teammates, said nothing but good things about the offensive protection that he was getting, which we knew was lacking. So if he, with the advice of his agent, 
says something that may be a little off character, you as the fan, you as the people in the media, you as the person that's following Major League Baseball, deserve to give Jacob DeGrom a mulligan. Because if there's anybody in Major League Baseball that has earned one, it's him. He's going through a rough spot right now. He's pitched better than anybody in Major League Baseball over the course of the last calendar year. He has earned himself at least a solid discussion over the parameters of what a big long-term contract would be, and he hasn't gotten it to this point. Obviously, he has different representation now. There's a different agency group that's representing him. There's different people that are advising him. Maybe it's just a matter of negotiating tactics from the agent. Maybe this new agent is going to want to go to the press and want to put the possibility that DeGrom could compromise some point part of his integrity if he doesn't get the deal that he wants to. Maybe that's something Brody Van Wagenen and CIA would have never done representing any one of their players. So you have to understand that this may be more of the agent's decision than it is DeGrom's. And I'm absolutely giving this guy a mulligan. Just a reminder that this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you will find in no beer at any cost. So the NBA All-Star game obviously doesn't get the attention that the Major League Baseball All-Star game does. Certainly you look at the Pro Bowl, the National Hockey League All-Star game, and what they're intended to be is exhibitions. And I think what makes the Major League Baseball All-Star Game superior, at least from a, you know, a viewing standpoint, is Baseball All-Star Game is played like a regular Major League Baseball game. Obviously, you have the best players in the sport, but if you look at the way the rosters are constructed, you have players that are voted in by the fans, you have players that are picked by the managers, but you also, in some cases have some interesting candidates, whether it's a player that can play multiple positions, whether it's a short reliever as opposed to just all starters and closers. And there is a, a good representation on each one when you talk about the American League and the National League All-Star teams of what a better, the best roster or a very good roster that can be constructed to make the game played like it would be during a regular season or a game would be played in a postseason. Now, the NBA, you look at the amount of scoring, and obviously if you look at all of the major sports, the one thing that generates the most ratings, one of the thing that generates the most revenue and generates certainly the most interest is offense. Offense is what sports are about. People want to see offense. People want to see scoring. So... Some basketball fans that were watching the NBA All-Star game last week were, were certainly happy to see, you know, what was it, 340 points scored between the two teams. But we could all agree that even in the day and age that we live in where NBA scoring is up, most games are finishing in the 120s. You're seeing games where there's 140 or 138 over the course of Regular regulation schedule games that don't go to overtime, but to get up in the 170s and the 180s does not look like a regular NBA game. Now, the fans, particularly a lot of the younger fans that love to see the stars, would have enjoyed watching Steph Curry and LeBron James and Kevin Durant and, you know, Giannis Akunatampo 
going up and down the court, producing ridiculous scoring, and obviously James Harden and guys like that all on the same court. For the younger fan, it works. But I do suggest and I believe that there's a way that we can change the NBA All-Star Game to make it the most interesting for all fans. Not just people that want to see a whole bunch of scoring and an exhibition of something that couldn't divert any differently from what you see over the course of a regular season and a regularly scheduled game. Here's what I would do. You look at the way baseball all-star games get, you know, put their rosters together. They're looking for a utility player. They're looking for a short reliever. I think you, you should, we should go back to the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference. Allow the fans to vote for your five starters. Allow the coaches to pick a series of players, maybe the next five. And you could talk about the next high, five highest scorers or five best players according to that coach. And then we set a three or four player selection by coaches that we're going to base it off of defense. And we're not going to base it off of the highest of scoring averages. When you got guys that are out there and you know scoring 25 points a game on a good team or on a, on a, a bad team, they look good. The numbers look good. But in the end, what do you want to do? You want to set up two teams, even if it is on an exhibition level, to compete with each other and try to win a game, but use all elements of basketball to try to win. So when you have a team or two teams, whether they're Eastern Conference or Western Conference, whether LeBron James and Giannis are selecting players in a fantasy basketball format, that may be interesting, but you're getting one group of scorers against another group of scorers. So there's no surprise that you know, you're making a run over the potential of 200 points being scored by one team because that's all everybody brings to the table. You got 10 to 15 top scorers against 10 to 15 top scorers. Now, anybody that knows what it takes to win an NBA championship, what it takes to go deep in the postseason, what it takes to have a the best constructed roster to go out there and win as many games as possible, knows that you need some balance between offense and defense. You know that you need to have some fundamentals. You need to have some players that can do different things. A player that specializes in guarding a top scorer that can prevent points as opposed to just going out there and scoring more points than the opposition. So, listen, it may not be popular, but for a real diehard basketball fan that loves the way the game is played, you have to appreciate defense when it's played well. And I don't see why when we're selecting players or players are being selected for the NBA All-Star Game that we're not factoring in players that dominate on the defensive side of the ball. You know, we may judge rebounds. Somebody, you know, could average 12 to 15 rebounds a game. They may get in the All-Star Game because of that. But how about that ability to shut down a top scorer of the opposition? to contest their threes when they're going out there. And instead of that player, like a James Harden, going out there, going 8 for 15 from beyond the arc, he goes 2 for 17. But it's because of the defense and the guy that was assigned to cover him for the majority of the game. And that player may not show up in a box score. He may not score 10 points. He may not have a ton of rebounds. But his ability to stop or prevent the scoring from the opposition could be a factor in that team winning that particular game. 
And the NBA, obviously, we understand it's an exhibition. We understand that games are built off of offense. And maybe in an exhibition format, we want to see as many points scored as possible. But if we want to allow for the NBA All-Star game to appeal to the majority of fans, you would want to see the game being as close played possible to what you see during the regular season. And no team, whether you're the Golden State Warriors, whether you're the Toronto Raptors, whether you're the Milwaukee Bucks, have five players on the score that on, on the floor at the same time that are doing nothing but chucking up threes. We see a lot more threes being shot now than ever in basketball history. I agree with that. But there is some effort made, especially by the better teams, to play some defense. There's some effort to control the ball and prevent the other team from scoring in addition to just going out there, chucking up threes, and trying to score as many points as you can. I understand that's the way the game is headed to, but it still is not indicative of the game that we see on the court day in and day out. We may see some examples of that. We may see sometimes it seems like the game is leaning that way, but when it comes down to it, the team that's going to make the playoffs, the team that's going to make the run in the playoffs, is going to have to at some point show the ability to stop the opposition in big in, in big moments. If you have a back and forth game, even if there's a lot of scoring, it's going to come down to not necessarily who's going to hit the big shot, but just as much as what team is going to be able to stop that player from hitting that big shot or getting that type of look that's going to make that shot easier to go in as opposed to being contested. So I suggest that maybe the NBA looks at a different way of selecting its All-Stars, maybe selecting and rewarding some of the better defensive-minded players and the players that are playing the best defense, especially in the day and age that we live in. We have stats for everything. Let's show these stats that are tracking what players on the defensive side of the court are able to stop those top scorers and stop some of the better players in the NBA and reward them. Let them play in the All-Star game. And you know what? If you're a coach, you can make a decision over whether you want five scorers on the court at all times or you want to pick and choose where you're going to use your defensive-minded player to stop an opposing player. Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Glad to be with you. The last thing we're going to hit up today and talk a little bit about is what seems like, finally, the conclusion to what Colin Kaepernick has had to deal with and go through when it comes to the NFL. And if you've listened to my take on what I feel about Kaepernick. I think he is a person that it's very hard to question whether he is or is not as passionate about the cause that he's supporting. He was willing to risk, and may not have known it at the time, his ability to play in the NFL again. At this point, it seems very unlikely that Colin Kaepernick will ever play in the NFL again. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. But I do think as we get into year three of Kaepernick not being on an NFL roster, it's going to be harder and harder to expect him to be able to join a team and have some sort of impact. You're not bringing Colin Kaepernick in if you're an NFL team to hold a clipboard for you. You may have a little bit of a quarterback competition. Maybe you got a young quarterback that hasn't shown enough yet 
maybe have a veteran that's in there that just isn't getting the type of results. And if you bring Colin Kaepernick in there as a third quarterback, you at least let him compete in training camp, compete during the preseason, and maybe in the end, he can end up being your starting quarterback for the first couple weeks. You look at the draft as it's coming up, you got guys like you know, Dwayne Haskins and Kyler Murray. Maybe a team that would be interested in drafting a player like that may not be in such a hurry to play them right away. And if there's a journeyman backup, maybe Kaepernick could go out there, play a couple weeks, and maybe try to reestablish himself in the NFL as an NFL quarterback. Outside of that, nobody's going to sign Colin Kaepernick to hold the clipboard. Just like nobody would have signed Tim Tebow if he still wanted to play pro football. Obviously, that ship has sailed. He's making a pursuit to try to play in the major leagues with the New York Mets. That may or may not happen. That may or may not be earned. But I do think he's doing everything he can to try to put himself in the best shape to succeed. But Tim Tebow is not playing in the NFL. And if Tim Tebow decided today that he wanted to try to play in the NFL, nobody would sign him. And nobody would sign him for a very similar reason that they wouldn't sign Colin Kaepernick. Not because of the type of person that they are, not because of what they think of him as a person, but the extra media coverage that's going to follow Tim Tebow around would not make enough sense to have him hold a clipboard and not and potentially not get in an NFL game. And if Colin Kaepernick is expected as far as where he ranks on the depth chart, let's say he's behind a Drew Brees or he's behind an Aaron Rodgers, you know, you look at Deshaun Kaiser, didn't play or barely, barely played in, in the NFL last year, you, you want to make sure that that player is not getting a ton of distractions when it comes from the media. You don't want hundreds of reporters talking to and asking questions about a player that isn't going to be an integral part of your roster. Now, like I said, if Colin Kaepernick is going to have a chance to compete for a job, that's one thing. But if he's not, if the, in all likelihood he's going to be st standing there holding a clipboard, then that distraction of what's going to be caused by the media, it may not be anything that Colin Kaepernick says from here on out, it's not going to be worth it for that franchise to want to have that player on their roster if they're not going to be competing and playing. But I, I do believe, and I, I give some kudos to the NFL, in a situation which they have handled terribly, to at least reaching a settlement and up in the ante and going to the amount of money that would have cost to keep the collusion cases of Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed from reaching an arbitrator. Because you know what? Once you get into the arbitration process, all your dirty laundry gets leaked. Every little thing that was done or wasn't done becomes public knowledge. So it made sense right off the bat for the NFL from a business standpoint to make sure that they settled with these two players. And as part of the agreement to the settlement was that there wasn't going to be any further discussion of anything that was talked about behind closed doors. So the NFL, which has a series of very good businessmen that run it as owners, it was in their best interest to make sure that they settled with both of these players. That being said, it was disgusting what happened to Eric Reed last year. The fact that one of the top defensive backs in the entire National Football League was not given a job because of his stance on kneeling for the National Anthem. You, whether you agree with it, whether you disagree with it, a player that is up on that level and is one of the best at, at his position 
should not be colluded against and blackballed because of his stance on anything. So that was terrible. Now, obviously, as Kaepernick has been held out of the league for the last couple of years, the more time that goes by, the less of a point it would be for Kaepernick to play in the National Football League again. And I don't think that's necessarily fair to him. Now, I, I've, once again, as a politician in this particular matter, which I've stated that it's kind of the way that I, I view this, I respect the player's right to express themselves however they want, but I also respect from an employer standpoint whether you want to employ somebody or not employ somebody. You have that right, you have that right to make that decision if you don't want somebody on your team. If you feel that that person's off the field distractions are going to outweigh what that person can contribute to your team in trying to win, if you don't want the media circus that's gonna follow Colin Kaepernick around, you, as one of the 32 owners in the National Football League, have the right to make that decision. Now, is it is it a good decision? Is it something that you, you feel over the course of time is really made within the best of faith? Probably not. But I understand from a business standpoint, you not wanting a player that's going to be that much of a distraction. Now, I disagreed with it a little more two years ago. As we moved in time, it just makes less and less sense for Kaepernick to return to the National Football League. The question is going to be number one, and maybe he'll have to state this publicly, does he want to play again? Does he want to go through the rigors of getting himself in football shape, and maybe he is already in football shape, but does he want to go out there and play another down in the National Football League? And also you have to evaluate where he is now. Has he digressed at all? Maybe the couple years of being off and not taking any hits could actually benefit and once again, it would have to be that perfect scenario when you're talking about an NFL roster and the construction of its quarterbacks. You could say, hey, a young quarterback that you may not necessarily want to throw out there right away or a backup quarterback that's in the league because, you know what, there just aren't that many good quarterbacks. Nathan Peterman's getting a job. There's you know, guys like Tom Savage that are still getting jobs in the National Football League. When Alex Smith is getting hurt and you know, tearing up his knee, there's guys like Josh Johnson that are getting a chance to play again. Josh Johnson hadn't played in an NFL down in seven years, and he's getting a chance to play. So Colin Kaepernick can certainly compete with the likes of that. And I would expect, even not being in a game for the last couple of years, I think he can perform at that level. But, once again, it's got to be the perfect storm. It's got to be the perfect setup when we're talking about a quarterback situation as it applies to a particular NFL team. There's got to be an opportunity for him to earn playing time. It can't be, you know, backing up Tom Brady. It can't be backing up, you know, Aaron Rodgers or Drew Brees. Now, if there's an injury, sure. Maybe you have that quarterback compete with your backup. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPaley.com as well as St. Alwish's Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. A little bit of a recap of the show today, and I do promise, I promise, we'll get back on the air tomorrow. We'll talk a little NASCAR. We'll talk a little bit about an interesting list that's, that's set up when it comes to the greatest MLB position players of all time. And this is something that I've put together. I've put together a top 100 list, which I'm going to put up on JohnPLA.com. We're going to see if we're going to copy the you know the file on there or maybe put it up as a document because I got it as an Excel spreadsheet. 
We'll talk a little bit more about it tomorrow because I think there was a good uh, variation that was made or a differentiation between greatest and best. So we'll try to talk about that tomorrow. Uh, a little bit of a recap of the show today. We talked about Manny Machado. I think Manny Machado is good for baseball playing in a different city like San Diego as opposed to New York or Los Angeles. We have the we understand that there's a large market versus small market mentality that we talk about. And, you know, as a baseball purist, I'd like to see as much competition in a game of Major League Baseball as possible. And it's good to see a team like San Diego, an organization that doesn't have the history of signing players to big-time contracts, signing a player to a contract that's richer than any free agent contract in baseball history. It may only last a couple days or a couple weeks. We'll see when Bryce Harper signs, but I'm happy for the Padres. I'm happy for the Padres fans. As they look at their optimism towards this season, the 2019 season, and beyond. Jacob DeGrom, I believe he deserves a mulligan. This is a guy that has handled himself with the best of class. And it has a new agency group that's representing him. And I, I and, it, and if, if the thought out there is that maybe the new agent is improperly influencing Jacob DeGrom, then I'm willing to give him a little bit of a pass when it comes to his statements about perhaps walking down his production or maybe not pitching as many innings. Because you know what? It was it was an insinuation that he was going to talk to his agents about it. He didn't make any declarations. He didn't say, if I don't sign a contract by opening day, I only want to pitch 160 innings this year. He didn't say that. Now, if he doubles down on it and makes more specific demands, then I think those comments should be treated a little bit differently. However... This is a guy that, when he was getting absolutely no run support last year, having one of the best seasons that we've seen in baseball over the last 25 years, didn't say a word about it. Supported his teammates. Handled himself like an absolute gentleman. When it comes to his contract negotiations, up until he made that comment about perhaps walking back his innings or something along those lines, said everything the right way. He's handled himself like a consummate professional, and he deserves a mulligan. Those that are going out there ripping Jacob DeGrom, saying he's getting greedy, saying, you know, how can you say what you said, are probably reading too much into the actual comments. He didn't make proclamations over exactly how many innings he was going to pitch. He didn't make any proclamations that said that he was going to compromise his integrity at any point. So he deserves a mulligan. The NBA All-Star game. How about the Eastern and Western Conference have their best teams as they're put together. A mixture of scorers, defensive players, specialists. One team against another team. And maybe we could get the scoring down a little bit. Now, listen, you may love the scoring, but we could all agree that the scoring in the NBA All-Star game is way higher and way more off-balance than what we see during a regular season or in a postseason. I'm thinking about reasons that may bring more fans into the actual All-Star Game, which we know All-Star Games in professional sports aren't getting anywhere near as much attention as they should. Major League Baseball and its All-Star Game, yes, may be boring to some, but it's the closest representation of the game that you see 1 through 62 or in the postseason. In the NBA, we're talking about games 1 through 82 in the postseason. We're looking at a different game that we're seeing then as opposed to the All-Star Game. And that, I believe, is impacting 
the ratings, it's impacting the viewerships, it's impacting the interest in its game. And what's wrong with bringing a couple players that specialize in defense that may not necessarily score 20 or more points a game? We could talk about scoring, score the most points, but we could also talk about score prevention, preventing the other team from scoring points. And you see the teams that win year in and year out have a very good balance when it comes to being able to stop the opposition just as well as they can score and go on the offensive themselves. Finally, Colin Kaepernick, it looks like you know he's he and Eric Reed <clears throat> have reached settlements with the National Football League. Listen, I actually would like to see Ka Kaepernick get another shot in a National Football League team, but it's going to have to be the perfect scenario. It's going to have to be a team that could offer him a chance to play. Not that he deserves it. Not that he has earned the opportunity to play. But Kaepernick on the football field it's, would be worth to see more than it would be to have Colin Kaepernick, the distraction, holding a clipboard, not getting a chance to play at all in the National Football League. So we'll be back with you tomorrow. I want to talk a little NASCAR, which we will. Uh, a little bit about the top 100 players in Major League Baseball history. And we'll talk about a couple other people's list of their top 20. We'll talk about greatest versus best. We'll talk a little bit about generations. So if you're a baseball historian or you like baseball and its history, like myself, hopefully it's something that uh, that will appeal to you tomorrow. We'll obviously bring up anything else that's going on in the world of baseball, sports, and unify in America. This is the Past Fall Show brought to you by JohnPielo.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.